my ideas come from probably like my desires in a way. It's, it's a mix of like desires, strategy, like sometimes it's spontaneous, sometimes it's not. Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan-Bever, and each week I'll be speaking with the most innovative ideators in culture and trying to figure out how they make their creative decisions. This week, I'm talking to Leah McSweeney, who carved out a space for herself in the world of streetwear with her brand, Married to the Mob, and parlayed that success into downtown celebrity and eventually into a role on The Real Housewives of New York. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. In 2004, a young woman from New York City had an idea. The streetwear movement, born out of a confluence of skate and hip-hop style, had been largely created by men for men. But Leah McSweeney saw an underrepresented community of young women, herself included, who shared the same influences and aesthetics as their male peers, but had no brand catering to them. So she married her parents' work ethic with her taste sensibilities and embarked on an entrepreneurial journey known to the world as Married to the Mob. He was a projectionist at Angelica. Um, yeah, he's a huge movie buff. That's a I real mean, New York job. Real New York job. was a projectionist in the union. Um, my mother was a social worker that worked um, on East Broadway at a like detox program. She then started working at like the federal for the federal government as um, a social worker, and then my dad became a health inspector. So very my working class, you know, but um, educated, and I guess. I don't know. I mean, I respect my parents, like, like work values and, like, ethics. But, like, I guess I saw, like, a very different lifestyle than I had. And um, I just felt like, God, they're working so hard. Like, so hard. Grueling hours. My father had crazy hours. My mother was juggling my father, me, my sister, and my brother, and a full-time job with no help except for my grandmother lived in a building, luckily. And I was like, I don't know if I want to work this hard for, like, this amount of money. Like, I just, you know, and I don't... you decided to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I was like, I don't want a boss. Like, I want to do it my own way. It's not, right, you know what, it's not working less, but it was like, I just felt like I want to have more fun working. What was that juxtaposition like going to Sacred Heart and I would imagine being with some very affluent kids? Yeah. Whose parents are doing totally different things. Right. Um, Definitely. I think the difference was bigger in my head. Like, I don't think anyone was like looking at me like I had less. Like, no one was like, she lives downtown. Uh," You know, no one was thinking that. But in my, I was internalizing it. And I was like, whoa, these moms are coming to school dripping in diamonds. You know what I mean? Like, I was noticing all of that. Like, wow, this is, like, way different than, like, my neighborhood friends or, you know. Um, But it was also fun because, like, I was, it was glamorous. Like, the moms looked so glamorous and the kids were glamorous and their homes were glamorous. And it was not a bad thing. Like, I I liked it. Like, it didn't, you know, I, I definitely, it gave me probably a little bit of a complex, but 
I wouldn't want it any other way. Fair. Um, how do you feel like New York prepared you for entrepreneurship? I was I was not exactly employable. Okay, let's just put it that way. In my tell me what was okay. The, so seventeen year old Leah, yeah, like? exactly seventeen year old Leah. Like you know, I definitely like had some behavioral like addiction issues that were like a big thing like throughout high school, and I was you know not allowed to live at home after the age of seventeen and lived in a therapeutic community in a halfway house and blah blah blah. So. I was kind of forced to do things on my own and I didn't have my parents to fall back on or like even their home to like move back into. So I actually started working at the guest store on Broadway in 2001 and was also assisting stylists, some really big names I'm not going to name right now, but, um, and I was being treated like garbage and I'm like, I cannot deal with this. This is crazy. This is not for me. I thought I wanted to be a stylist. I knew I loved fashion, but I'm like, I can't be a stylist. This is hell. Um, when you say that, what what exactly was going on? That okay, was so, so yes. Um, for instance, one stylist, I was just doing like free jobs with her being like, don't worry, I have a big job coming up, like with Jessica Simpson, and like you'll get paid for that shoot. And I was like, okay. And then she'd be like, that shoot got canceled. Then a few months later in Us Weekly, I see the fucking pictures of Jessica Simpson and her behind the scenes with her other assistant stylist. So I'm like, thanks, bitch. You know, um, I was working retail, but I was going out. I was partying nonstop. You know, like I was just not I was trying to have fun. Like I was a party girl. So Rob, I met Rob, Kiki's dad who owned A-Life and A-Life Rivington Club. And I was really, like, I have to say, I mean, obviously, Rob changed my life because, well, I kind of calmed down and stopped partying so much. And I was really inspired by him and his creativity and his work ethic and his passion for his brand. Had you thought about being in the fashion industry as a child or as a teenager? Yeah, I did. I think fashion was always such a big part of my life and like my style and clothes and fashion magazines and, you know, photo shoots and everything. Like I was always super into that, interested in that, and it was always important to me and my life. But I also had other things I wanted to do, you know, like I didn't know that I would end up doing that for like a profession. Where was a life at that time? Like, in terms of its growth and, you know. So that was in, I mean, A-Life, I think, started in, like, 99. Okay. If I'm remembering correctly. This was in 2002 that I met him. So it was only, like, four years into the brand. Uh, they they were on Orchard Street. I think it might have been, bef- no, A-Life Rivington Club already was um, open at the time when I met him. And, you know, we lived on Spring Street. We lived across the street from Sir. A-Ron was around. Like, you know, it was it was, like, this this the beginning of before streetwear was really like even a term and then before hypebeast existed you know but it was like this part of new york that was like bubbling and like being born and like people from all over the world were like into these brands and watching what we were doing and the guys were going on all these free trips because they had brands and i'm like i want to travel like i had been to europe once i loved it 
Like I need to go back there. I'll just start a brand because that's how I'm gonna get a free trip. Really? Yeah. That simple? Yeah. Leah's background in fashion and connection to Rob Cristofaro, the founder of A-Life, gave her the insight she needed to launch her clothing brand, Married to the Mob. So with that foundation and a small initial investment from a friend, she jumped off the deep end and got to work. I started the brand with um, a friend of mine named Sharon. A lot of people don't even know that she started the brand with me, but me and her were hanging out on my stoop we're like, let's do a brand. We'll call it Married to the Mob. I'm like, Rob can help us design. He knows how to fucking do graphics. We don't. Me and Rob, that night, I was like, we need to do this. Like, I'm doing this. Like, when I get something in my head, I get obsessive and crazy about it. Where did the name come from? Okay, so the name. Do you remember the Retail Mafia? Of course. <laughs> I never really talk about this part because I feel like it's so cheesy. <laughs> but, um... There were multiple meanings, though, with Married to the Mob. So one was the retail mafia. We were the girl counterpart, Married to the Mob. Secondly, MOB stood for most official bitches. That's what I called my friends. Three, I also would joke around and say that I, like, had a mob wife, like, life because I was kind of living off of Rob in a way. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and um, no shame, obviously. And just... Brunt, going to brunch and shopping, and I was like, this is the life. I'm kind of, like, married to the mob. You're about 22? I was, yes, 22. So that night, after me and Sharon had decided we were going to start this brand, um, me and Rob stayed up till, we were always staying up till 5 in the morning anyway, but we designed, I think it was, like, four different graphics. I went to Friedman's. Well, first, no, first I went to A-Life, and there was a guy named Ricky that worked at A-Life. And he was like, I have a T-shirt printing machine that I just bought. It's in my apartment. I'm like, great, you're going to print my T-shirts. I'm like, where do I go to get the T-shirts? He's like, you go to Friedman's. So I go to Friedman's on Grand Street, which was a wholesale account that sold American Apparel. I bought the 2102, which was more of like a boxy, like boy style girls T-shirt. And took them to his house in black garbage bags. And had the T-shirts printed. I mean, probably only, you know, maybe 10 to 20 of each graphic. And brought them to Union and started selling them there. Where did you get the money to invest in those first SKUs? So Sharon had, we, Sharon put $4,000 in and she quickly got paid back. That was it. I had been working at this store called Satellite Records which was like um, rave mecca kind of thing, even though rave, the rave scene was kind of over. But, you know, they gave us tickets to go to some electronic music thing that night at Hammerstein. So I went and I saw like an old fling there and me and him like left the venue and we're like walk, took a walk, then walked back to the venue at like 4.30 in the morning, whatever, when people were finally like getting out. And me and him were saying goodbye to each other on the corner. Now, yeah, there were tons of cops on the street, like, trying to get people off the street. But I wasn't paying attention to them. I was, like, you know, like, goo-goo gaga, like, in love with this guy. So I was kissing him goodbye. And, like, all of a sudden, I just remember, like, him, like, being, like, torn away from me. And I opened my eyes, and he was getting the shit beat out of him by five cops. So I had a half-empty 
Poland spring bottle in my hand. And it was just a instinct, gut reaction. I just, I threw it. I didn't even think about it. And then like, as it was like flying in the air, I was like, fuck, it's gonna hit one of those fucking cops, you know? And it hit a cop in the back. I just see that it hits a cop in the back and everything like went slow motion. Like the cop just like turned around and looked at me and like knew it was me. And I was like, in my head, like I'm fucked. And he lunged at me and punched me with a closed fist. And I just, I kind of spun and like fell and landed half on the sidewalk. So my face was like on the subway grates on 34th and 8th. And then half my body was off and onto the street. And then I just felt all these like fucking knees and like I felt so much pressure. Like there were just like people on me and I got handcuffed. And while I'm handcuffed on my stomach, the cop took my hair and slammed my face into the subway grates three times and was like, do you see what happens when you fuck with me, you little bitch? And I felt my tooth fall out, get knocked out, half of it. Um, And my feet, my shoes had gone, I was wearing like sandals, so it's not like, you know, they were sneakers, but they did go flying off of me. And I was barefoot on the New York City street, which is actually like a bigger fear than like getting punched in the face by a cop, to be honest. So they stood me up and I was looking and I was in front of the TikTok diner, which is right there on the corner. It's still there. And everybody was like, had their hands plastered on the windows and were like looking and they were like, they looked like, they had seen a ghost. Like, they looked so scared. I remember looking at them. I, I remember, like, a couple, like, staring at this couple that was looking at me and being like, and everyone looked so scared. I was like, what the fuck just happened? And I'm like, oh, my God, my tooth is, like, gone. So I saw this female cop, and I'm like, look what he did to me. Like, look. And she's like, if that was me, I would have knocked all your fucking teeth out. And I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, this is not going to be a good night. So they put me in the subway. They put me not in the subway. Sorry. They put me in the cop car. And, I mean, it goes on and on. Like, there were, like, many other, like, terrible things that happened that night. Like, I got, like, threatened. One of the cops threatened to rip all my clothes off at one point. I was in the cell by myself. Um, It was just such a gnarly experience. They threw me in Bellevue in the psychiatric emergency unit for some reason. Finally get out that night. And, or, like, the next night. Sorry. And um, I... When, when, when a 911 call is made and is complaining or making a, an accusation against a cop, the Civilian Complaint Review Board gets contacted, and they are the internal you know, um, bureau that investigates police brutality and stuff like that. So they called me, and they, you know, I had to go meet them, and I had to pick the cops that did what or whatever, and I got a lawyer. And actually, I didn't even realize that I had gotten a lawyer— that then dropped me, like, three days before I had fi- the final date to turn in a lawsuit. And I think they might have been working with the cops, obviously, because why else would anyone do that? And I got a different attorney very quickly and, um, and filed a lawsuit. I really just didn't want the cop to get away with it, which he did. He got actually promoted to lieutenant while this was going on. Um which sucked, but, you know, winning the $75,000 was worth it, I have to say. (laughs) How long did it take for you to see that money? It took 
probably two or three years, I guess, because I didn't get it until 2005, I don't think. Yeah. It takes a long time. And I had to go to court and see him in court and, like, testify against him. So it was, I was, Oh, so it, was, it wasn't, they didn't just... No, they didn't just, like, no, I had to go to court. He was there. So was the woman cop who said she was going to knock all my teeth out. So was the cop who said he was going to rip all my clothes off. Like, I had to see all of them again. It was horrible. The NYPD's brutality was a harrowing experience for Leah. But after a lengthy court battle, she was able to take the settlement money and repurpose it as an unexpected investment into her growing business. Money doesn't make a brand, though. You need ingenuity and influence, too. And Leah found ways to master both. But then two years later, you get this windfall at a moment when it's incredibly helpful. Incredibly helpful. What that money gave me the freedom to do was to quit the job I had, buy a computer, which I'd never owned a computer before, um, and of course then have extra money to put into the brand. But it was really going already, and it just gave me the freedom to quit my job and be able to like live and put all my energy into the brand. How long from making those first four skews until Mm -hmm. you were in a place where you felt like this can be the only thing that I do? Probably like that year, that same year. Because I was like, okay, not like I had like high expenses, like living expenses back then, you know, or anything like that. But we were making a profit. And like, I just knew what to do, kind of. Like I was careful with what I spent the money on. I mean, I just used me, my sister, and my friends as models. I had friends that were photographers. Like, so marketing was not like I spent money on marketing. I used the collaborations as marketing because those giant companies had money. So, like, for my Kengel collaboration, for instance, I'm like, I want to get a billboard painted, you know, like, pay for that, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I used the collaborations as a way to market everything, and it was free. And how are you handling the bookkeeping and the accounting? My first employee, Lourdes, who I love dearly, who I'm still in touch with, she was my right hand. We did everything together. We just kept, we kept track of like everything and and we shipped everything ourselves. And like anytime like I would ship it or someone would get paid, I'd put it in the paid folder, right? And like I would see who wasn't in the paid folder and then I would contact them and be like, you owe me money, you know? But I was doing all of that myself. My printer, I think I paid up front for the printing. Um, maybe they gave me 30 days, like, for half of it, right? Like, half I pay up front and then net 30. Um, obviously, that changed as it went on and as I was making a lot more stuff. But I also got investors in 2007-ish, um, which was a whole new ball game. I mean, I didn't have to do any of it. What prompted you to seek out investment? So just randomly, a friend was like, you know, you should meet these guys that I know who own Kuji and FUBU. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, went and met them. You know, I obviously had, I thought I was going to be like flying in like a pink Married to the Mob private jet that year somehow with them, like doing this deal. It wasn't, it was a good deal. It wasn't exactly quite like that. 
I was definitely making more money than I ever imagined myself to be making at age, like, whatever I was, 20, 25, when that happened, or 26, 25. What was the nature of the deal? So it was um, an equity deal. They owned part of the brand for three years. I got it back from them after the three years was over, which is unheard of, but they were good guys and they did the right thing. Um, and were they fronting monies for production everything. and everything? Okay. Yeah. yeah, everything. And I got paid a salary, like a very high salary. That's nice. Oh yeah, it was nice. It was really good. Um, but with that comes its own, like I kind of feel like I, the first like year, I don't know, I kind of got complacent or like, I don't know, because I was getting a check every two weeks or um, then I would like, it became less about when you have investors like that, like they're like looking at every single penny and they are looking at, they don't really care too much about the ethos of the brand like they want to make money which was like a good thing and a bad thing it was like interesting but also it like it didn't like fuck me up a little but like they wanted me to do men's t-shirts I never wanted to do men's t-shirts you know but I did some anyway like there were definitely things I did in that three-year period that like I wouldn't have done maybe if I hadn't felt like I had to kind of and what was the draw for you into going into that relationship Money. And also I was like, okay, I want to blow this thing up. Like there, we're going to sell this brand one day for $300 million. Like that was the idea that did not happen. But like, (laughs) but like I gave it my best shot with them, you know, that was only a three year period though, out of 18 years that I've been around. Was there any input or, you know, help with decisions that you felt like was really additive to the business? Yes. Honestly, listen, they, I was able to go to trade shows. I was able to go to trade shows, bread and butter and like other trade shows in Europe. You know, we became a lot bigger and had a lot more visibility. Unfortunately, in 2009, we had a recession and luckily for me, I was locked into a deal and I was getting paychecks, but like the brand suffered store because stores closed down and we had less places to sell the goods. Okay. So then when the deal was up, it was like, hmm, this is not, they were not interested in a brand that was not like bringing in FUBU money, you know? The Great Recession affected millions of people and many, many businesses and Married to the Mob was no exception. After having launched as a scrappy upstart and then spending a few years with heavy-hitting partners, as the recession hit, Leah found herself, in many ways, starting over. It was a time simultaneously marked by uncertainty and opportunity, but Leah found a way to lean into the latter. But you, So you end up leaving the deal with ownership of the brand. 100% ownership. And what oh did God. you feel like were the next steps from there? <laughs> I, okay, I went from having a corner, like a beautiful giant office on the 66th floor of the Empire State Building that faced south and west to having a office that was 100 square feet and I like sat on the floor to do things because there wasn't enough space to 
even really have a desk. I mean, it was humbling, but I was still happy. I was happy. Like, I was happy. I'm like, you know what? I'm happy to go into my little office because it's mine, and I own this brand again. It's just me. I can do whatever I want with it, you know? But it took a while. It took a few years to get it, but I had a resurgence, you know? I had... um a friend, I never really, like, talk about this. A friend gave me $100,000 and was like, do your thing, you know? And with that money, I hired a staff. I designed a line, and I went to the trade shows, and I built the brand back up again. And within a year or two, I was doing higher volume than I was ever with the my old partners. I mean, during that period, or from really launching the brand in 2004... There were several waves of sort of culture, right? Yeah. Like, you know, exactly. in 2004, everything that you were doing, we were doing at Massville, was all very sort of niche and small. Mm-hmm. By 2008, perhaps, you know, in part due to guys like Kanye and A-Track, and yeah. it was becoming extremely mainstream. But again, it sort of ebbed and flowed over the next three or four years. Right. Um, how did you think about riding those sort of waves of culture? Oh, my God. I think it was just about holding on for dear life and just kind of being malleable and, like, being able to, like, change and go wherever the tide was going and not try to, like, go against the current, you know, but, like, go with the current was, like, really important. Um I think that, that 2013, 2014, the years were, like, I had the most employees, was doing the highest amount of volume, and had no, uh, you know, partners. Obviously, my friend had lent me that money. But, like, being able to do what I wanted with it and have my own vision and not have, like, Garmentos, like, telling me, like, what they think the brand should look like. I mean, it was the most stressed out I've ever been in my life. But it was great. I was going to say, if someone asked you, how, how would you describe entrepreneurship? Oh, it's the most chaotic shit in the world. Like, it, I mean, for me, look, some people are like, I'm doing a business plan and raising this money, and boom, I'm selling this company for millions of dollars. It just wasn't like that for me, you know? Like, it was like hell. (laughs) It's like hell. Oh, my God. It was hell, but it was also like, I don't know. I liked how hard it was, or I liked the not knowing what was happening the next day. And I don't know, freedom. Again, it was freedom. Because even if it was like a hell, sometimes it was my own hell that I created. So it made it okay. Did, did you ever feel like you were sort of riding an emotional roller coaster? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's actually a great way to put it. It was an emotional roller coaster because every day it's like something great happens and something terrible happens. It's like, Hey, this new account wants you, but guess what? Like all your fucking stuff is like stuck in China and it's not going to make it in time, you know, or whatever. So I did have to learn, even though I'm not sure I really learned, but I tried my best to not get too excited or too down on things because I would literally lose my mind. How did you learn just sort of the nuts and bolts of running an apparel business? just by doing it and making mistakes and like learning and figuring it out. So, I mean, you're going in and negotiating deals with, distri- yes, you know, that's true. suppliers mm-hmm. and 
how are you figuring out how to, you know, source the T-shirts or sweatpants and deal with the factories asking in people, China? Asking Keith Huffnagel, asking Mark Echo, asking Rob. Um, yeah, just asking people. And people were forthcoming and... Those people were. Okay. Yes, Keith Huffnagel especially. Um, and Mark Echo too, so cool. Did you ever get close to opening a store? So I wanted, there were many times where I wanted to open a store badly and was like, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And Rob would always talk me out of it, even though he loves owning stores. And I was going to say, what, what, why? I don't know. Actually, I'm going to ask him why, because he still loves opening stores. Um, maybe it was for the best, but having a flagship is cool. What was it like emotionally sort of dealing with the ups and downs of the business. When you have year after year growth, I'm sure it's thrilling and you feel invincible. But when you start having down years and yeah. you know tougher seasons, what is that right. like? I think it, it's um, character building. <laughs> um, I don't know, I feel like it's part of the game. I mean, it's part of owning a business, at least in my experience, like a lot of the down parts is, I don't know, it's just part of it. It's all part of the, the whole experience. None of it's bad, it's just what it is. I mean, you mentioned all these other things that you have going on. You know, you sort of took me through the brand to 2014, to this 2013, 2014 the yeah. peak. How did things start to unwind and then where did you find new inspiration from? Okay, so this is interesting, actually, and a lot of people don't know this. So I had found another partner, not an equity deal, but like a licensing deal kind of. And um, it was interesting because I was really ready to shut the company down. I had like kind of just made some bad decisions and was not being responsible and was like distracted with other stuff. And my accountant was like, Leah, like you don't have, like you don't have any sales coming in like after next month. And I'm like, shit, I don't even have a line. Like what the hell just happened? I had to let go of my whole staff before Christmas. It was the most depressing, worst time of my life. I was like in my office by myself with like, like people's like notepads were still left out. I became best friends with some of my employees. Like they're still my best friends to this day. Having to let go of your best friends right before Christmas, like I felt like a piece of shit. I felt like the worst person in the world. And I was like, you know what? Mob's over. Like I'm just, it's done. And I'm like, I'm gonna go to this Zoomies event and this is gonna be my last um event there. I'm not going to tell them that when I go, but I'm just going to go. And it's like the last hurrah. I go, I'm literally being like, well, this is in my mind. I'm like, this is it, you know? And then all of a sudden I saw someone there I hadn't seen. And he's like, Hey, I'm looking for new brands to work with. I was like, that's so funny. Cause I'm literally about to shut my brand down and boom, the next month I signed a new deal. I don't even know how this shit happens to me, but I'm like, okay, I guess I'll keep going. I was ready to let it go. I literally had interviewed at Adidas. Really? Yes. I wouldn't last a day <laughs> in that environment. I would never. So 
boom, I'm back to the races again. Get a new office in Midtown or in the garment district. Um, rehire some of the girls. And I'm back to making a line, like a new line every two months. Brand's doing good. Um, then a year goes by. It's like 2016, whatever, 2017-ish. Um, these partners become a nightmare. I won't say who they are. Uh, and I'm like, you know what? It's just not working. Like, it's just, I'm putting so much energy into this. And I, I'm so tired and stressed out. I haven't even gotten to ever pick my daughter up from school because she's had a nanny because I've been in the office working to pay the nanny. And like, you know, so what's happening? I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to put, I'm going to take it back from the licensing people and licensors. I'm just going to put it on autopilot and just streamline everything, get rid of my office, drop ship from my printer to Zoomies, um, and take a step back. And I did that and was able to, well, was I making less money in a way, but my my overhead was so much lower also that I actually kind of evened out. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to let go of that girl boss shit and just fucking pick my kid up from school, make dinner for her, just chill, get off this anti-anxiety medication that I'm on because I'm so stressed out from the business. And things slowly became better and like things started picking up a little more a year later and then boom I got asked to be on Bravo which then obviously is a new trajectory for mob that I'm still kind of figuring out and that's mob (laughs) interesting so you you mentioned your daughter um you know you had your child at 25 which in the rest of the country is not yeah. particularly early, but in New York, right. and particularly in the world that you were in at the moment, pretty young. Yeah. Um, how did that change your attitude towards your work and towards mom? Yeah, I think that, oh, it changed it completely. Like I was like, this went from like a passion project that, yeah, I was serious about it and like it was my everything, but... Now, like, with the baby, and, like, I need... This is, like, do or die. This is everything. It became much more serious. Okay. Everything became much more serious. And how did you manage juggling those two things? I mean, help, like, for sure. Like, um, my mom, a nanny, Rob, you know, luckily. I don't know how other people do it. It's really hard. (laughs) It was hard even with all the help. It was still hard. Um, going back to the, the sort of early days of the brand, you know, you started doing very limited drops at very high-end retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, within streetwear, you sort of have like a spectrum, right, with like, I don't know, James and Supreme on the one yeah. end and Mark Echo on the other and, right. I don't know, yourself and Bobby Hundred somewhere in the middle. Right. Um, how did you think about growing your brand and, you know, sort of maintaining that balance of preciousness with volume. Yeah, that was a fine line that I was walking for a while. And then I was like, I just want to sell as much as possible. (laughs) 
Target, where are you? <laughs> like, I don't care. Um, because look at Uggs, look at Crocs, look at Nike. I mean, well, even though I guess Nike obviously does do, you know, they're, they have everything so tiered out. Yeah. But like Air Forces, like anyone can get Air Forces at any time. They're still fucking awesome, you know? Like they're still precious in a way. Did you feel as you as you sort of embraced more mainstream places like Zoomies, was there blowback on the other side? Oh yeah, oh yeah, there was. Um, but I also think that like there was also enough brands at Zoomies um, that other stores like couldn't really be mad. Plus, like for a while, a lot of stores were just like going out of business and stuff. It's like, thank God that a lot of us had Zoomies to sell at. Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in person, and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. Now back to the story. A decade and a half into Married to the Mob, with the brand chugging along steadily, Leah was presented with an unexpected opportunity to become a cast member of the hit Bravo TV show, Real Housewives of New York. The platform opened her up to a wider audience, injected Mob with new life, and has given Leah a chance to step back from the day-to-day and to focus on her emerging passions. You mentioned that the Real Housewives opportunity kind of fell into your lap. How did that happen, and how did you think about that fitting into this sort of larger picture of your career? Hmm. You know what? When I got, once they reached out to me about even just talking to them about it, I was like, wait, I'm not ready yet. Like, no, like, I'm not ready to be on this show. Like, give me, wait till I'm 40, you know, but I don't think it works that way. So uh, the opportunity came through uh, my facialist, actually, who one of the women who used to be on the show also goes to her and said to her, and she followed me on Instagram. She said, do you think I can suggest Leah, like, to the casting people or the producers? And my facialist asked me, and I said yes. And okay. that's how it happened. And what's the process? They interview you? or how, how Yeah. Do- um, we're, like, not allowed to talk about the casting process <laughs> too much. But I can tell you that, yes, they, you know, they tape you. They ask you some questions. Um, you get... What, if you make it past that round, you do a chemistry test with one of the women. At least that's how it went for me. And then they're like, you're on. There you go. They mic you up, then shoo you away. And how did you see this fitting into sort of everything that you've done professionally before this? I mean, obviously I was like, oh, great. This is going to be an amazing way to promote the brand. But again, I'm like, does anyone watching this show want to wear Mary's in the mob? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, But I was also just, like, excited at a new experience, you know, like, it's kind of cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Has it translated into a sort of new wave of interest in the brand? 
oh my God, like the sales. I mean, I wish I had like the exact numbers, but the online sales, like within like a year, it was like 500% more than the year before or whatever. It was crazy. That's a pretty big percentage. It, it was, yeah. So you mentioned that you were sort of now thinking about what the brand means in this new context mm-hmm. of who you are in your life and, and the audience that you've created. Um, what is the process of sort of wrapping your head around that from a design and, you know, brand perspective? Um, I also, you know, it, it also is like we have to factor in like COVID world, yes. unfortunately. And obviously the retail landscape is changing and everything's changing. What people are wearing is changing. Luckily, people are wearing I mean, I think we did really well also that first year because we were selling sweatpants and sweatshirts and that's what people were wearing because no one was leaving their house. But it's an ongoing process of like figuring out what the next steps are with mob. Things might be completely different in a year. How much time are you able to devote to it? Not as much as I used to be able to, that's for sure. Do you have a team? And- I have a team, yeah. Mm-hmm. You oversee everything from a day-to-day level to a sort of macro strategic? Um, I'm not really involved in day-to-day, but I have I approve everything that's being done, everything that's designed, everything that's going to be, every photo, everything, yeah. Okay. How do you think about stuff like, you know, financial planning and, and growth within the brand? Like, and not just now, but over time. Like, do you sit down at the beginning of the year and, like, come up with... <laughs> A strategy or uh, I'm laughing sales because, goals. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I don't do that, but someone on the team does that, and I'm like, you know, I'm. It's just I'm not that person. I'm not good at that. Like in that in that sense, like I'm not a good entrepreneur because like the financial planning and the business plans and stuff. Thank God, yes, there's someone on the team that does all of that, and like I'm actually tomorrow gonna see him, and we're gonna go over everything. Okay. Yes. So someone um, does do it. You have done a number of different permutation of deals. Do, do you have a preference when you think back about the equity deal versus the, the licensing? That's interesting too. So right now I'm also in like a, it's kind of a licensing agreement, but it's not like a typical one. It's a little different. It's more of a partnership, even though they don't own equity. But it's not just like, here's my name, do whatever you want with it, right? Okay. Um, so I always told myself I would never do a partnership again, like an equity deal, because I'm like, I don't want to have a partner. I don't want that shit. I don't need it. But now I'm thinking it might be. See, but then yesterday I was like, maybe I do need that, actually. I changed my mind a lot. The in- if someone owns part of the company, then they're more incentivized to make it successful. Mm. Of course, even a licensor is you know, incentivized because they're making money off of it. But when you own a part of the equity, it's more incentive. So that was what was making me think about that. Okay. And when you do a license deal, are you basically giving them the marks or the ability? Like, how does, are are you still managing the brand? I'm still managing the brand. Okay. Like, they have the rights, but at the same time, I have to, like, approve things when I'm very involved with all the decision making. Have you ever at any point thought about selling the brand? Yeah, of course. I just, is anybody interested? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> was that a, a goal, like, as you were building at all? Or was it kind of always just a sort of, yeah, if the right opportunity comes along? I'd... I think it's just more if the right opportunity comes along. Okay. And normally they do for me. So I think when the time is right, it'll happen if it's meant to be. But I'm not, like, yes. every day, like, I'm building this to sell it. Like, that's not how I operate. What part of it is still satisfying to you? Um... Like seeing like Rihanna this season, uh, you know, Ramona being like, I'll, I'll wear your brand. What is it? Leah Mob? Married to the Mob? And I'm like, oh, I don't need you to wear my brand. I already have Rihanna rocking it. And then having Rihanna, who loves Roni and who has worn Mob in the past, put it on her Instagram. And a lot of people didn't even realize, like a lot of people are just like, oh, she's posting about Roni or whatever. Because she posted a slide, like one of her wearing my shirt. And then the next slide was like of the clip. And I'm like, this is an insane full circle moment. And like this weird time where my both worlds are colliding. And like that is exciting for me and satisfying. Very satisfying, of course. How do you keep yourself engaged and excited to keep pushing it forward? I'm not always. That's just reality. Like, you know, I... um Sometimes I'm just not, like, inspired. And I just don't take it that, like, I don't trip over it. I'm like, whatever, tomorrow I'll be interested again. You know, next week I'll be interested again. But it definitely gets, um, it, it gets challenging because it has been so long. Obviously, I do other things, which if I was only doing mob right now, I'd probably be like, oh, my God, I am over this, you know, but because I'm, writing my book, I'm on the show, I have a new brand, you know, I'm doing a bunch of other projects. It helps me stay engaged. Were there any points where you felt like this could all be over tomorrow? Oh, yeah. Like when I had, yeah, right, when I had to let go of everybody before Christmas. Um, There was a few other moments too, but uh, I mean, I don't know, somehow then the stars would align in some weird way and I'd meet someone and I, I don't know. It's like, you know, I almost, like, tried to get out of doing the brand a few times, and it, like, wouldn't, like, <laughs> like follow, chase me down. It's like, no. I'm like, okay. So, yeah, we're in it together, me and Mob. Well, this isn't exactly a collaboration, but this was the first, one of my first designs that I really? did. Yes. And, you know... I mean, so much of streetwear is obviously like appropriating other logos or lyrics or, um, you know, designs. And I feel like I kind of learned to do that by watching the people that did it before me, especially Supreme. And when I came up with the idea for the brand that very night, me and Rob were designing and I was listening to Little Kim and she says, queen bitch, supreme bitch. And I'm like, oh my God, supreme bitch. And we'll do it in the supreme logo. That'll be so cute. And it got approved and it got sold at Union. If I had never been in Union, I probably would have not blown up the way that I did. Because obviously at that time in 2004, Union was like one of the coolest 
boutiques in the whole world, and other boutiques were looking at Union to see what they were selling. You yeah. said you got it. It got approved. What is it? It what got approved. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As the proprietor of the business, what does that right. mean? Right. Okay. Um, so Marianne, who owned Union, yes. She and I was friends with some of the guys that worked at the store, and I was friends with her just from going in there and hanging out and whatever. And um. She was like, oh, I love these shirts. You know, and there were a few other graphics too, but she was like, oh, these are so cute. Let me go bring it to James to see if like it's cool to sell. And I was like, okay. So we walked over to the to his, the office on wherever street that is. Like, I can't remember. I didn't go up. I just waited outside downstairs. And like 10 minutes later, she came back down like, yep, I'm gonna, you know, I'll sell them on consignment, of course. What, so James Jebbia himself, <laughs> not only approved of this, but then sold it in his store. Yeah, he sold it in the store too. Okay. Um, you know, there was a little. That's, was a, a little that's a wrinkle that people don't report. Right. In the story. Years later, there was a little disagreement about it, but it's all water under the bridge now. Fair. You know. Thanks for checking out the Idea Generation podcast featuring Leah McSweeney. We hope Leah's story showed you how to leverage your connections and partnerships and the importance of being adaptable while also knowing when to stay the course. Thanks to our sponsor at Shopify. If you're looking to start an online store, check out shopify.com ideas, trusted by millions of businesses worldwide. What is success? What is success? This is so hard because obviously a lot of it is tied into financial stuff. For me, at least, I don't feel like I'm successful yet. <laughs> like I used to have a very like girl boss kind of drive. I don't have that anymore. It's a lot less about success for me, but I really do want to feel just like at peace with like the things I'm doing. The goalposts do keep moving because obviously like the more things that you succeed in or the more things you have, like the more things you want. and. It's like all relative.